0: We're going to continue our Through the Bible study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book is how we roll here at Athey. We're in the book of Zechariah. We finished up just only one chapter on Wednesday. We need to pick up the speed uh, so we're going to be zipping through Zechariah, um, And chapter six, uh, we're going to pick up on Wednesday where we uh, are going to see the final of eight visions that Zachariah is given. So that'll be kind of an important one. We'll pick it up on Wednesday. Um, but at the end of chapter six, those are the end of his eight visions. And so we kind of start a new section here of Zachariah. And I'm going to jump ahead and try to gain some ground on this Sunday morning. So why don't you grab it and turn to Zachariah chapter seven. Uh, six, six will be on Wednesday, seven uh, today. We'll cover this whole short little chapter, Lord willing, right now. Um, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting chapter. And it just raises some interesting questions. Um, you know, there's an old uh, true story I, I, I'm told. Uh, during the, the, the days of 1859 in St. Petersburg, uh, there was a custom for everyone connected with the court Um, They would go to the the promenade in the summer garden between Paul's palace and Neva. And there, the emperor, uh, they they were walking through the gardens in this big kind of festival sort of thing. And the emperor was walking through and he saw a sentry, a a guard standing, you know, at attention, kind of guarding in a weird space in the middle of the lawn. And the guy was just there posted. And the emperor's like, why is that dude there? Like, what's he there for? And so he asked the guard, why are you here? And he said, orders. Somebody gave him the order to stand there and he's been doing that. And how long have you been doing that? Months. Huh. Well, the emperor asked around, went up the chain of command. Why did you order this guy? Well, there's always a guy that's standing right there and that's all he could find out. Well, we've always had a guy right there posted. Well, why? What's the point? And and the emperor, the more he found, nobody had the answer. But the hubbub reached the servants quarters there in the palace. And one of the older guys said, well, I know why he's there. It actually goes a long time ago. He said, when my grandfather was serving here, um, there was a nice sunny early spring day when Catherine the Great, 63 years earlier, she was walking in the lawn there in the gardens and she saw a brand new early spring flower. And she was so excited to see the flower that she ordered one of her guards to stand and watch guard over that flower to make sure nobody stepped on it. 63 years earlier. It never got canceled. Like the guard just stood there day after day guarding the flower. The flower long was dead and they just, the guards just kept standing there for 63 years. Uh, That's why he was posted at that strange place in the middle of the lawn. Do you ever find yourself asking, why do we do what we do? Now, if you're an older person here, I'm not saying what happens to us, you know, when we're in the house, like, why am I on this side? What did I come to this room for again? That's different. Uh, That's a whole other sermon. Uh, I deal with that from time to time. I'm, I'm actually talking about stuff we cognit- you know, cognitively accept and just do without even really thinking about why do we do what we do? Um, and it's always good to sort of check yourself because sometimes you'll find we do stupid stuff for stupid reasons and we have never really even questioned or you know, even sought the Lord, Lord, should I continue to do what I'm doing? Um, you know, it's an interesting thing. Uh, you know, the Israelites now here are gonna ask a similar question after doing the same thing for many many years, they were doing something, and these are people from the the place called Bethel, uh, House of the Lord, um, and they're going to ask the Lord a question in our story here. And you got to understand. Remember the stage here. If you're just joining us in this study, Zachariah, the book of Zachariah, is set during the period when you know we call it the post-exilic period, where they were exiled for seventy years in Babylon, and then when uh, you know Artaxerxes. Uh, 445 BC actually declares that says the Jews can go and restore and rebuild Jerusalem and build their walls and all that stuff. And, um, and the Jews, you know about fifty thousand of them went from Babylon, their captivity, and went back to Israel and Jerusalem and started rebuilding. and they'd been doing that for years. They got their walls built by Ezra and Nehemiah, and their houses were all built. We learned from the book of Haggai. And now in Zechariah and, and Haggai, they're sort of saying, guys, you got to finish the temple. Let's get the temple finished. Because it sat for 16 years half done. And there was nobody working on it. And that's what part of the book of Zechariah is about. Get this, the temple done. That's what Haggai was all about. But, um, but in this scene, the Jews now, they're, they're living large. They got their houses nice and built and everything's kind of starting to look up. And that sort of forces this question that these men of Bethel come, and they want to inquire of the priests and of the prophet uh, of the Lord. And in, in the Old Testament Hebrew Bible, if you were a, just a person who wanted to know what the Lord was saying, you, you didn't really have the, the Bible to look to. So they had the prophets, and the prophets would seek the Lord and speak on behalf of the Lord. And that's kind of what's going on here in Zechariah. They're asking these guys a question, and Zechariah is going to seek the Lord, <clears throat> Excuse me, and the Lord's going to give them a, an answer. Let's take a look. It's chapter 7. Zechariah 7, we'll begin right here in verse 1. It says, And it came to pass in the fourth year of King Darius, that the word of the Lord came unto Zechariah in the fourth day of the ninth month, even in Chislew, or as the Hebrews say, Kislev. Um, And when they had sent unto the house of God, Sharitzer, and Regemelech, and their men to pray before the Lord. Now, before we hear what they're going to pray and seek and say, what's going on here? Well, these are, these are guys coming to inquire of the Lord. But there's a few interesting things about this. First of all, the month of Kislev, as the Hebrews would say. But did you know that's not even really a Hebrew word? Um, The the, the month Kislev is actually a Babylonian month uh, from the Babylonian calendar. It's the ninth month of the Babylonian Babylonian calendar. And the only time we ever hear this month talked about is in the post-exilic books like Zechariah 7, 1, the verse we just read, and Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. It's the only time we read this month of Kislev. You say, well, Brett, we don't care about months. Can we just keep reading? Well, there is something about this that you should note. There's some Babylonian stuff that has lingered with the Jews. The Jews, you know, they, they, they come from Babylon. And, and, you know, there's an old saying, you know, you can, you can bring the Jews out of Babylon, but you can't get Babylon out of the Jews. Or even the story of Egypt. Remember the Jews were slaves in Egypt? You can get the slave, the Jews out of Egypt, but you can't get the Egypt out of the Jews. And you can say that of us. You might become a Christian and you can say, well, you could take the world out of the Christian, but sometimes it's hard to take, or you can take the, the, the Christian out of the world, but it's hard to get the, the world out of the Christian. What do you mean, Brett? Well, sometimes worldly stuff, godless stuff, stuff that's not really of the Lord lingers in our lives. And there's a little bit of that here in this story, not only in the fact that they're talking about the Babylonian month, they should have, by this time, got back to the Hebrew calendar. Um, but they're doing that with the, the Babylonian calendar. And then there's another hint about this um, by their names. The two guys that we just read there in verse 2, um, they, they sent under the house of God, the first guy, Sharitzar. Uh, um, his, his name, by the way, is a Babylonian name. He's a Jewish guy with a Babylonian name. Uh, his name means, by the way, in, in the Babylonian culture, protect the king, Sharitzer. Uh, The second guy, Regemelech, his name means king's friend. Uh, And and it's also a Babylonian idea. Um, Now, interesting, the the Babylonians were unique in ancient history. When they conquered a people, they did something that was unusual and they were really good at it. And it was actually one of the most successful things. Think of um, ancient battles and wars. How did you deal with the people that you conquered? Some people would just slay everyone. Uh, you know, you might, you might t- think uh, Genghis Khan or Genghis Khan is his really name, it was pronounced. Um, you know, there was so much bloodshed, they killed millions of people. Um, and they didn't have prisons or prisoners of war, they just killed everybody um, or made them slaves. That, that was actually a good day. <clears throat> if they let you live and you became a slave, that was a good day in ancient war. But the Babylonians did something really strange. They'd kill a lot of people in the battle but then they'd take the people in and they'd get the best looking, most in shape, uh, sharp, talented, young. They'd get all the young, youngest, best and they'd bring them in and say, come be a Babylonian, come live in Babylon. We'll show you how true living is. And we see that, by the way, in the book of Daniel. Remember when Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and Daniel were taken in? They didn't put them in some prison cell. They let them live in the king's palace and eat of the king's steak and have the king's wine. That's what their goal was. They wanted, to, they wanted these little Jewish guys to become true, tried and true Babylonians. And you know what? It worked. The Babylonians had very little um, you know, uh, problem with people rebelling against their kingdom because first they were really powerful. But second, people are like, by the time they kind of hang out in Babylon for a while, they're pretty much, oh, Babylon. Like they love it, they they love it living in Babylon. It's like, great, hey, forget Jerusalem, total dump compared to Babylon. Like That's kind of what happened. That's why, by the way, when God says, I'm gonna return my people to Jerusalem, only, and I say only, you might think it's a lot of people, but it's like not even a 10th of the Jews went back to Jerusalem. Uh, Only 50,000 Jews went from Babylon back to Israel. Only 50,000. The rest, they were good old fashioned Babylonians by their 70 year end of captivity. But even these Jews that come back, they still got some Babylonian in them. By the way, remember when Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they, they were all given new names. Quiz time, trick question. <laughs> I'm giving you a warning. Um, what was Daniel's Hebrew name? Anybody wanna take a stab at it? What was Daniel's Hebrew name? Not Belteshazzar. See, that was my trick question part. You, I know you were right, technically. Daniel was his Hebrew name. <laughs> I'm just, your breath, that's not fair. No, Daniel was his Hebrew name. Belteshazzar was his Babylonian and The reason I ask it that way, well, let's, let's ask it this way. What was um, Shadrach's uh, Hebrew name? Anybody? Nobody's gonna answer after my trick question. They're like, <laughs> I'm not saying a word. Um, okay, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, okay? Those were their Hebrew names, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, those were their Hebrew names. Isn't it interesting? Of course, most of you are probably like, no, it's not interesting. But to me it is, <laughs> that Daniel kind of kept his Hebrew name throughout the story. Even, even when we heard Daniel's name was changed to Belteshazzar, that's the first and the last time we hear that in the Bible. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, they get their name changed to these, these um, uh, you know, Babylonian names, and those names kind of stick with those guys. And they are sort of a little more Babylonian, if you would, than Daniel was in that sense. Even when the kings would summon, they wouldn't say, get Belteshazzar, they said, get Daniel. Uh, even Nebuchadnezzar's mother says uh, to Belshazzar, uh, I know a guy named Daniel. Like they, they still refer to him as Daniel. So his name stuck, the other guys, and even in veggie Tales, they're Shackrack and Benny, like those are the Babylonian names. <laughs> they stuck for century, millennia. Uh, that's kind of interesting to me. And, and the reason I bring all this up is, and not to you know, spend too much time on this really, but, but the idea is, you, know, you and I should be aware that we can take on you know, worldly, godless sort of things when the Lord wants us to be, and if you look at the meanings of these names, by the way, those, those young men had godly names given to them by their mothers and their fathers. Uh, but they, they ended up having these Babylonian names. I wonder if the Lord, by the way, when you get to heaven, the Lord's gonna give you a new name, the Bible says. That's an interesting thing, what will your name be? I'm a little worried about that one. But anyway, that's, <laughs> that's a whole nother story. But um, so, you, you know, you can get the people out of Babylon, but you can't get the Babylon out of the people. And that's, that's the thing. These guys are talking about the Babylonian calendar with their Babylonian names, and they're coming to seek uh, the Lord and, and ask this question. So uh, what, what's the question? Uh, verse three. It says, you know, they, they came to pray before the Lord, verse two, and then verse three, and tend to speak unto the priests, which were in the house of the Lord of hosts and to the prophets saying, should I weep in the fifth month, separating myself as I have done these so many years? Now this question, you and I at first glance, are like Wh- whatever, um, it, it, even by nature, does it sound a little contrived? I mean, has anybody ever walked up to you, should I weep right now? Like what a weird question. People usually weep because they're just gonna weep. You don't say, uh, maybe an actor, if you're in Hollywood, um, should I weep right now? Is this the scene where I fake the tears and everything? Like that's kind of the thing, it's a contrived, should we weep as we've done every year for 70 years, this uh, weeping? Now the word weep here in the Hebrew, it's not just weeping, it's something that Jews would recognize as a triplicate. Weeping, mourning, and fasting and praying is the idea. Fasting and prayer. Fast and prayer goes in one, mourning, weeping. This is what they did, they wept, fasted and prayed and mourned. And they also would wear uh, sackcloth. They put on this rough material that's like gunny sack um, and they weep, fast and mourn. Well, why were they doing that for 70 years? That you can get a sense that they're a little bit, are they tired of it? Because they're, they're asking, do we need to keep weeping, fasting and mourning on the fifth month? And it's not just the fifth month, by the way, that's what they're asking. But the true question is, should we weep and fast and mourn as we do on the fifth month and the seventh month? Um, I'll show you what I mean here in a second, but that's what they're asking. It's almost like, do we have to still weep, fast, and mourn? And it's like, they don't want to do it. Um, uh, And so why were they weeping and fasting and mourning? Well, somewhere along the way, somebody 70 years earlier said, we need to weep, fast, and mourn. And the reason 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians crushed Jerusalem you know, made rubble out of the temple in Jerusalem. And so some of the Jews said, we're gonna just weep fast and mourn. And every fifth and seventh month, we're gonna weep fast and mourn because Jerusalem is in rubble and our our country's been crushed. And so that's what they did for 70 years. Now, um, the temple's being rebuilt. Jerusalem walls are back up and running. Their houses are built, things are looking up. And like, do we have to still weep fast and mourn as we've done these 70 years? Um, Interesting question. Um, now, uh, the so that kind of that's what I'm going to call this first section that we've just read. Um, basically, you know, this first section I'm going to call it an interesting inquisition. They're asking the Lord, Lord, do we have to weep fast and mourn still? We've been doing it faithfully for all these years. Do we still need to do it now? Before we are critical of this, let's give them a little credit. At least they're asking. You know, I wonder how many of us just do stupid stuff and think that God's impressed by it. Um, and we think that the answer was, of course, we have to weep fast and mourn. Um, what are the things that you and I do that are actually, we should ask the Lord, Lord, should we continue doing this? Is this something that you're into? Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's interesting, like um, what, what we do as churches, for example. Um, what is the church supposed to do? And, and the church does a lot of things. And I wonder if, for example, if, if uh, some of our Catholic friends would go to the Lord, Lord, should we continue to wear pointy hats and robes um, as we've done these millennia? What do you think the Lord would say? I kinda think I know. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that you're supposed to wear a pointy hat and wear a robe as a priest or a pastor or a clergyman. Where did that come from? And and it's, it's good to ask maybe the origin. Where did that, like this weeping, fasting, and mourning thing, where did that start? Well, it started at the destruction of Jerusalem. Did God ask them to do that? Well, actually, the answer is no. But they're just doing it thinking that somehow it makes God happy if there's things that, that you know the Catholic Church or, or the Protestant Church, for that matter, does pointy hats, fancy robes. where did that come from? Well, therein lies a story. Back when Christianity, <clears throat> finally, by Paul the Apostle, reached Rome, uh, for about the first 300 years of Christianity, um, you could die quickly being a Christian in Rome. You'd lose your head, like the, you know Nero chopped Paul's head off for being a Christian. And it got worse from there. 10 waves of Roman persecution for 300 years. It was a radical, horrible time uh, for a Christian if you're living in Rome. Um, By the way, I love, um, when I was in Rome a few years ago, uh, we went down, my my favorite place in Rome was the catacombs. Um, You go down under Rome and there's these miles and miles of tombs under the ground. You say, Brett, that's kind of creepy. Well, it's kind of Indiana Jones a little bit, but also more importantly, during the persecution of Christians in Rome, the, the, the Christians would go on a Sunday morning, they'd go and they'd meet in the catacombs in the tombs because they didn't want to be found out as Christians. So they'd secretly gather and worship Jesus in the catacombs. And what's also interesting, by the way, and this will come into play in our discussion, um, there was a symbol they'd carve into the rock of the catacombs to be the symbol of where they would meet. Does anybody know what that symbol was? It was not the fish, Good though, you're, you're, you're on the right track. Huh? Uh, there is some of that, but it was actually the anchor. The anchor was the symbol. Um, you might be tempted to say, "Well, the crosses—they carved crosses." And did you know the cross was really not a part of the early church's symbol? That, was, that came much later, and um, and keep that in mind. But the anchor it came from the scripture that talks about how the Lord is our anchor of hope, and and the anchor was kind of a symbol along with the ichthus, the fish symbol. That's why Christians, uh, the the police call them flying fish, uh, the Christians that drive too fast. But um, <laughs> I've heard that from police officers. But um, but it was the anchor. I like the symbol of the anchor, by the way. That, 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 and that's a good, can you imagine if you're in persecuted times, the symbol of an anchor would be kinda, yeah, I like that a little solidity locked in, safe. That's, that's cool. Um, so the church did that. <clears throat> now in a, around 300-ish uh, AD, that's when Constantine comes, sees the cross uh, and the sign of this conquer and blah, blah, blah. And whether or not Constantine was really a Christian, don't know. Historically, that's a hard one to discern, but it worked out for him politically to suddenly change from Christianity being persecuted to Christians being celebrated. And then it only took about 100 years after Constantine, Christianity became the religion of the Roman people, the legal religion, you kind of had to be a Christian. And so you say, well, that's good. Well, it's always tough when you're legislating Christianity. That never works out very well because Christianity becomes sort of tweaked out. I think that's what we see a lot in the world today. But um, but what happened was in Rome before Christianity. What was the religion? Well, as it turns out, there was sort of a paganism in Rome. Uh, maybe you remember the Gladiator movie, and the guy has the little idols in his little pouch, and he put out his little family figurines. That was totally legit. That was a legitimate de- depiction of sort of a pagan practice of the Romans that reached way back to ancient Babylon, Semiramis, Tammuz, Nimrod, uh, Babylon, all that stuff, and that mystery Babylon paganism kind of crept through a bunch of regions of the world, but Rome was one of them. And so they had worshiped Saturnalius and Estarte uh, uh, and all these different things. But you remember what happened when, when Constantine and the gang starts changing to Christianity, what happens? All these pagan priests are like, well, what are we supposed to do? Uh, we're, we've been doing this for you know, millennia. And they're like, hey, no sweat. You you priests, keep your pointy hats, keep your robes and your scepters and your swinging incense and all the, the things you do. We're just gonna Christianize it all. You guys are now Christian priests and you're gonna do the Christian thing. And instead of Saturnalius, we'll, we'll worship um, you know, Christ's mass on Saturday. You know, instead of Estarte and, and that whole pagan thing with the rabbits and the eggs and stuff, we're gonna switch that to the resurrection where Jesus rose from the grave. And that's where all these things happen. Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. You know, and you got to understand that came from an ancient pagan thing that just kind of transferred over. Now, by the way, some of you are like, yeah, Brett, why do you have Christmas trees at your church at Christmas? Why do you celebrate Christmas? You're pagan. Um, Well, actually, um, I love that it actually was transformed. When we celebrate Christmas, are any of you guys worshiping Samaramis, Tammuz, uh, Nimrod, any of that stuff? No. Most people don't even know that exists. Um, it's, and I like it. It's made a successful transition for the most part. The Yule log, pagan, mistletoe, pagan. Like there are, there are pagan nuances. The Babylonian name still sticks to it a little bit if you remember what I'm talking about here. But I love how Christmas has kind of changed over. It really is, we celebrate Jesus. Now, um, uh, you say, okay, Brett, got that. Um, but, but that's where the pointy hats came from the Pope wears the pointy hat and it it made it all the way. It's a little bit like the guard guarding the petunia on the ground or whatever. uh, And it just kind of stuck. But the pointy hat thing stuck for a long, long time. And some people come to Athey Creek and they're like, Pastor Brett, where's your pointy hat? This is not a real church because you don't have a pointy hat. You see what I'm saying? And that's just a dumb human tradition that actually goes back to paganism. In fact, there's even good things that people kind of mistake question, is it good to fast? Is fasting a biblical notion? Yes. Yes. What about weeping? Yes. Yes. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. The Bible tells us to weep with those that weep, mourn with those who mourn. Like all of this is a biblical thing. But these guys in their little routine of weeping, fasting, mourning, you know, and stuff, that's the question that they're asking. Should we continue to do this? And I think the answer is going to be a little bit of a shock. The Lord's going to say, no. And he's gonna give them some shocking reasons why. Um, and that's what I wonder if you and I are gonna ask, why do we as a church do what we do? Or why do we don't do what we don't do? Some of you might've wondered, you know, maybe, maybe if you're newer to Athey Creek, you're like, why does Athey Creek, why did you guys not do a Good Friday church service? Every good church does a Good Friday service, Brett. Do you just wanna have a day off? Well, yeah. Um, but that's not why we don't do a Good Friday service. Well, why don't you? Now, let me just say this. I've led Good Friday services. I've done Good Friday. When, when it's Good Friday, me and my family, will sit and pray and thank the Lord for dying on the cross. Like, like, so don't get me wrong. I'm not bashing Good Friday, but let me tell you why Aether Creek doesn't do a Good Friday service. And it's a little bit because I'm, I'm a little bit, and me and my governing elders and our leadership team, we're a little bit sticklers to things that are true. And we kind of like true things. And let me just tell you about Good Friday. Jesus did not die on the cross on a Friday. Brett, how can you say that? The Pope said it did, he did. Okay, let's do the math here for a second. When did we, this is something we know from the Bible. When did Jesus resurrect from the grave? What day of the week was that? We know this one. Sunday, it was a Sunday morning. Um, By the way, that's when the church started to meet after Jesus' resurrection. It said they'd meet on the first day of the week. That's when the church started meeting on Sunday. I know that our Seventh-day Adventist friends are like, ah, but but, uh, I'm sorry. That's when the church started meeting on Sunday. It's just really clear historically. But, if you meet on a Saturday, we got you covered. We had two services last night, four o'clock, six o'clock. <laughs> if that's your thing, we're, we're, we can accommodate. Um, but but uh, what day of you, you know, the, the, so the, the Jesus rose early Sunday morning. That's, that's given in the Bible. How long was Jesus in the grave or, you know, buried, if you would, anybody? We did. You know, even the most clumsy of Bible students could say three days and that, and most of us know that. Was it three days and three nights? Do you know that? Well, this is what Jesus talked about there in John chapter three. Remember, Jesus said, even as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so too will the son of man. And he goes and starts talking about how he'd be in the center of the earth. That's that when he first descended before he ascended. Remember that whole thing? Jesus made the claim in three days and three nights. So what what does that do? If you do the math, if Jesus died on a Friday afternoon, as so many people say, That only gives them Friday to Saturday to Sunday morning. That's like a day and a half, or maybe you could maybe stretch two days out of that. Do you you see the problem here? So if you actually ask real Bible students and theologians, when did Jesus die? They they won't say Friday. That's just a tradition that kind of stuck because it was just called Good Friday. It worked for everybody's calendar when they started that and it was all good. But it was actually probably a good Thursday. There's actually a very scholarly argument that says it was even Good Wednesday. And it has to do with the Passover and when the sun goes down. And in a Jewish day it doesn't start in the morning. A Jewish day starts when the sun goes down. Do you understand that? So there's all kinds of things we could talk about about when Jesus actually died, what time of day, and the Passover and all that stuff. Because remember when they went to kill the guys on the cross because it was Passover? There was there was actually a reason they said, We gotta kill these guys. So they broke the legs of the two thieves, but when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. They threw the spear in his side. That's the way that story went down. But they did that because. We know it was Passover. So suddenly we've got some problems with the whole Good Friday thing. But that's not the main reason I don't celebrate Good Friday. Not only is it the wrong day, but as it turns out, and this is me just being kind of a Bible guy, I love the Bible and I'll do anything the Bible tells me to do, but I'm a little careful when the Bible doesn't tell us to do something. And guess what? Nowhere in the Bible did it say, thou must have a Good Friday service they didn't, Jesus didn't even ask us to have a day where we celebrate Thursday or Wednesday or whenever it was. There's no time in the Bible says thou shalt do this. But Jesus did tell you and me to do something related to his cross and his death. And it wasn't a good Friday service. What was it? Anybody? Huh? Communion. Jesus said, do this, not that. Do this in remembrance of me. Communion is what Jesus asked the church to do regularly. Do this often in remembrance of me. That's biblical. I can stand on that one. Communion is biblical. Now, let's talk about communion. Pastor Brett, I've noticed uh, that when we do communion at 8th Creek, where's your pointy hat and your robe? I already answered that. Well, why don't you put the wafer on our tongue like the church I grew up in? And now we have to get on our knees and say, and. <laughs> And like, why, why don't you do that? I'll tell you why, because it's weird. <laughs> now, if you study the history of why they started doing that, I understand. Um, and it also has to do with a, a, another thing of transubstantiation where you think the bread literally becomes the body of Christ and literally the wine literally becomes his blood. And there's people that believe in transubstantiation. The Bible does not teach that. Um, I'm just saying, uh, you you look it up, you can study it, you know, and disagree with me if you want to. But when they started believing that the the cup was actually the blood, you better not spill one drop of that. So the priest was responsible to make sure and get the wafer on the tongue and not waste any of it. And there was very ceremonial things to do. None of that's in the Bible. I understand the heart behind it, but that was just made up stuff. And so you're like, yeah, Brett, so, you know, um, but what about this? I haven't been baptized into Athey Creek. Some of you, this is funny, because it still happens, I see it, some of you, when we do our communion service, some of you get up and leave. And I, I was always kinda like, why would you leave during the most important part of the service? And I asked one of the people that I saw once, I said, hey, I noticed that when we do communion, you get up and leave. It was one of our Slavic community people, uh, and they're like, oh, Pastor Brett, they, he said, you know, we can't have communion at Athey. And I said, why? Well, we were baptized in the Russian church, uh, you know, or the Slavic church, and, um, and we can't have communion here. Like they literally felt like they couldn't do it because they hadn't been baptized at Athey Creek. Again, that's just traditions that, that, you know what? That came from people wanting not to lose people in their church. They wanted to make sure nobody ever goes to another church. And you're part of this church. You better stay here for the rest of your life. <laughs> um, but, you know, and you say, Brett, Athe Creek, you don't even have a formal membership. Can anybody guess why we don't have a formal membership? Anybody? Don't read it anywhere in the Bible. There's never a signing up to join this this city of church or that city or, that's just not in the Bible. I understand why churches have memberships. And by the way, there's a lot of really good churches with memberships. Don't get me wrong, I'm not bashing that. It's just that Athey Creek, we're kind of trying to peel away things that are kind of unnecessary. See, biblically speaking, if you have been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and you have accepted Christ, you're a member at Athey Creek. You are a member of the church of Jesus Christ. And any other walls that we put are so unnecessary and it causes all kinds of trouble. And that's why we're a non-denominational church. It's not that we're trying to be wishy-washy saying, we just don't have any denomination. It's more like, you know, this is our denomination right here, the Bible. And we're not saying that sanctimoniously, we're just saying that truthfully, because man, we have all these weird traditions that people get into. So back to communion, wafer on the tongue. Um, Actually, here's what Jesus said, when you eat bread, you can break it and when you eat it, you can remember what I did on the cross. That's, that's as much as you need. So when you're at home and you're making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and I'm not trying to be irreverent, but if you take a piece of that crust and you say, Lord, thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. And then take a bite of that bread, that counts. According to Jesus, not according to the Catholic church or the Episcopal church or a lot of churches with their rules and regulations but according to the Bible, I think you're in good standing. If you, if you take a moment out of your day and eat the bread and remember, and drink the cup and say, I remember that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Um, I don't think you have to even do it at church. You can do it at home. See, we put these artificial rules. And so I bet there's gonna be people shocked when they get to heaven. They'll get to heaven and say, Lord, should we have been having the wafer on our tongue by the priest? Lord, you can do that if you want to but I'm not really into that. In fact, what what if the Lord said to you something like this? Yeah, you could do that, I wasn't into that, but you could do that if you want to. But what I was really into is you being nice to your wife. What I really would have liked, rather than your communion ritual, I would have much rather had you feed the poor. Or I would have much rather had you watch out for the orphan child. That's what I actually care about. Brett, are you just making stuff up? Well, this is where this discussion goes. We start with this interesting, Inquisition. By the way, when it comes to Athey Creek, um, I did a whole thing on our vision and direction. and Really, we largely we get our our mantra from the early church. Acts chapter 2 verse 42. They continued steadfastly in four main things. The Apostles' Doctrine, which is teaching the Bible. Breaking of bread, which is communion. And I think having meals together too. Um, And fellowship. The word fellowship is koinonia. It means not just hanging with each other, watching football and stuff. Koinonia means uh, fellowshipping around Jesus, focusing on Jesus, and then in prayers, uh, that's obvious, to pray together and say prayers to God as a church family. So um, those are the things they continued steadfastly in. Um, Another non-negotiable is what should church Christians be doing? Going to all the world, preach the gospel, baptizing people, um, making disciples. Would you agree that's something we should be all about? I kind of wonder, our church, as we get into balancing our checkbook and making sure our marriage is good and raising children and all these things. And we might say, Lord, we have done our, you know, series on financial liberty. And the Lord saying, say, you can do that if you want to, but I really wished you would have given, been given to the apostles doctrine and, the, and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayer. That's what I really wanted you to do. See, that starts to make me nervous. What are the things that we do that we don't even really know why we do them? And, and if we ask the Lord, what would his answer be? Um, That makes me a little nervous. And that brings us to this next section of this chapter. We started with an interesting inquisition. Should we keep fasting, praying, weeping, and mourning? And the problem is the next section is they had a poor assumption or presumption, I should say. They presumed that God was interested uh, or pleased somehow by their weeping, fasting, and mourning and praying for 70 years. They thought that that was what God was into. And we don't even know whether it was God or man who instructed them to do this at the beginning, but I I kind of fear that God never really asked them to do this, you're gonna get that sense here. Um, Let's read, uh, let's continue where we left off there. It says in verse four, then came the word of the Lord of hosts to me, that's Zachariah the prophet, saying, speak unto all the people of the land, and to the priests, saying, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, Even those 70 years, did you at all fast unto me? Even to me? So the Lord answers the question with a question. Um, Verse six, and when you did eat and when you did drink, did you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Should you not hear the words which the Lord hath cried by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and in prosperity and the cities thereof round about her when men inhabited the south and the plain? What does the Lord say? He says, when you guys were weeping and fasting, were you really doing that to me? Now you gotta understand, the Lord knows the answer to this. When the Lord asks a question, he already knows the answer. And the answer is they were not weeping, fasting and mourning. They were going through some kind of a show that they thought was impressive. Look, we're weeping Lord, fasting and mourning and praying. And the Lord's like, were you really doing that for me or were you doing that for yourselves? And the answer is you were just doing that for yourself. Your motivation was way off. And you should have been listening to what the prophets were telling you back when the prophets were telling you to repent from your sins. But there you were doing what you thought was right and holy and cool, but they missed the main thing. You didn't listen to the prophets. They were honoring their own practice. They were honoring their own tradition. Um, And so that's why I'm afraid saying, you know, I'm not really going to do a good Friday service because Lord never really asked that of us. But man, when it comes to communion, we're gonna take that as serious as we can, but without adding more and more weird traditions to it. You know, and you've heard me talk about this. Uh, People do make these mistakes all the time. One of my favorite things to do is to bring a picture of Jesus printed from my printer, my, you know, inkjet printer. And you just Google up Jesus and look up the images and you'll see the picture that always comes up. You know the picture I'm talking about. It's the Southern California Surfer Jesus blonde flowing hair with a beard and, and you're like dude that's awesome that's Jesus but you and I both know that's not Jesus some artist made Jesus back in the 1950s or something a picture that that looks kind of like what Americans think Jesus looks like and, and we think that's Jesus so I'd, I'd print out my I, this was always funny I'd bring it to church with you guys and say, see here's Jesus and you're like yep that's Jesus and I say now I'm going to rip this paper because this isn't really Jesus and, and man I'd watch people even some of you right now are already going and I don't even have the picture in my hand. But I'd sit here and talk while, like this. And people were just dying, squirming in there. Go, don't rip Jesus, please, Brad. We're gonna leave the church if you rip Jesus with F. Um, now, <laughs> um, uh, but what it was actually is just dot matrix inks splattered on a page in a certain pattern that a computer made of an image that's not actually even Jesus. It's, it's just, it's a guy that somebody painted. And yet we make something really holy to where you couldn't even rip it. Uh, people would be totally offended. That's just crazy, weird things that we do and believe. And, and as much as I love a cross on a church building, I think it's great, the reason we don't have one, because everybody thinks we have to have one. Brett, I like Aether Creek, but where's the cross? You gotta have a cross. I'd rather put an anchor up there. I think that'd be better. That's what the early church did. You could even put a big old fish up there if you wanted. But a cross, I love the cross and you can wear crosses and I love churches with crosses. But, but the reason Athe Creek doesn't have a cross is because everybody told us we had to have one or else we weren't a real church. And that's not only not biblical, it's just kind of wacko. I love a good cross. Um, I like the hymn, the old rugged cross. Someday I'm gonna shock y'all and there's gonna be a big old cross out in the top of our building. And the reason why is, is I see value and beauty in the cross. Of course. But just because everybody thinks you have to have one, that's one of these things. Lord, should we have a cross on our building? And I wonder if the Lord would say, you can put that up there if you want to, but I kind of didn't really ask that of you. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell you to do that. But what I do care about you is being nice to one another, loving each other, being forgiving of one another. That's kind of what I care about. Brad, are you making this stuff up? No, just wait, we haven't even finished this yet. Uh, As we keep reading, you're gonna be shocked. These guys, should we weep and fast and mourn and pray as we've done piously all these 70 years? And the Lord's like, eh, you should have listened to the prophets. And when you did that stuff, you were just doing it to yourself. Don't, don't forget what the Bible actually says. Do Are we supposed to do what we do for ourselves? The Bible says no, Colossians three twenty three and 24. Whatsoever you do, Do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men, knowing that the Lord of the Lord, you shall receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. What you and I do is supposed to be done heartily as unto the Lord, not just for our own thing or for other men to see. Um, Why do you do what you do? What's your motivation? I mean, I wonder if some of you are even here at church. Why are you here at church? Some of you, I love Athey Creekers because I get the sense from most of you that you're just glad to be here. I love that. Um, going to church is more of a get to and not a got to. I love the, the sense of that here. But I do wonder some of you, um, you, you know, you, I get the sense there's a few of you that were kind of dragged here by your parents or by your mother or by your wife. I, can, I know who you are. You're the one slouching in the back right now, flipping through your phone, looking up vacation spots, <laughs> ordering your Amazon stuff. I see you guys when I'm walking around, I go, oh, there's another Amazon surfer during worship. You're, somebody dragged you to church today and you're here. You know, and I would just say, check your heart because that's totally whacked, man. That's wacko, totally wacko. Um, why do you do what you do? Are you doing it just because people are asking you to do it? The Lord says, yeah, I'm not really into that at all. Um, it'd be better for you to, to not do it, I think. Um, <laughs> it's not only that, 1 Corinthians ten thirty one. whether therefore you eat or drink. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's the problem with these guys. They were fasting, and they were doing it for their own purpose, and they weren't really serving the Lord, they were serving themselves. So why do you go to church? Um, do you go because somebody dragged you, because you're glad to be here? Or, or it can get weird. You could even be here originally for the right reason, but then you can start letting your motivations, and by the way, this story tells us that God sees your hearts and your motivations. So the young guy signs up for children's ministry. Yeah, I'm, I'm serving the Lord in children's ministry. And the Lord says, yeah, you did it because there's a lot of pretty girls teaching back there and you just want to ask one of out on a date. The Lord sees that. Sees your evil intention. <laughs> um, the Lord sees that. And that's the problem. Um, but weeping, fasting, and mourning, biblical things. But the Lord says, yeah, I'm not really into you guys doing that on the fifth month, seventh month. Check your motives. By the way, all throughout church history, um, There were people that did stuff that somehow they thought was pleasing to the Lord. One of the most crazy groups you'll read about historically are the ascetics. Um, Asceticism, what was that? Well, these are people, by the way, that did kind of a severe self-discipline and avoided all form of indulgence or comfort uh, for religious reasons. I'm not going to be comfortable. I'm going to be in pain because God wants me there. That's what they thought. Um, And so what did they do? (laughs) Boy, the list is long of the, uh, you can read about the aesthetics. Uh, uh, Saint Asepsimus wore so many chains on his body that he couldn't even hold his body up. He had to be on the ground all the time. And if he wanted to go from point A to point B, it took him inch by inch. He had to drag these chains on the ground. Uh, This guy, Asepsimus. And he thought that was pleasing to God somehow. Uh, Bessarion was a monk who wouldn't give in to his body's desire to sleep. Um, and so a good, restful sleep, he thought that was an indulgence and sinful. So he, this is a true story, for 40 years, he only would sleep standing up against a wall. And that way he would never enter into a real deep sleep. He would just just you know, barely be able to get enough sleep to survive. Mercarius the younger, he would sat, this, this guy's crazy, he sat naked in a swamp, a snake and mosquito infested swamp. He sat in that swamp for six months, um, the story goes to tell that it, when he got out of that swamp after six months, he didn't even look like a human being. He was so swollen and bloodied that they thought he was actually a leper uh, when he'd walk into town. St. Marin uh, spent 11 years in a hollowed out t- tree trunk thinking God, that pleased God. But one of my favorites was a guy named Simon the Stylite. The Greek word for stylite is a pillar with a chapiter at the top, kind of like this picture. This is an artist rendition of Simon the stylite. He was a guy who fasted to the point of almost death many, many times. He got kicked out of a monastery because the monk said, you're too radical for us. You know, we, we can't keep up with your starving yourself and inflicting pain on yourself. So they kicked him out and he started to wander and do stuff, but he was so you know, perturbed by sinful people in the world. And he said, I got to get away from this. And he'd find tall things and get up at the top of them and sit there. And every day he'd get up on something tall. Well, eventually he said, I am never coming down. So he found a a pillar, and that's what this picture is. Um, The the pillar that he found was 60 feet tall and the top of it had a six feet wide surface at the top. Um, And he remained at the top of that 60 foot tower for the last 30 years of his life and never came down. Cold, rain, snow, wind. uh, He even chained himself to the top of that so that when the winds came or if he slept, he didn't want to roll off the top and splat at the bottom. So he literally chained himself to the top of this thing for the last 30 years of life, never coming down. They, you know, put food up to him in a basket. That's asceticism on a rampage. And these people literally thought they were somehow pleasing God. I wonder if this guy, if he made it to heaven, I wonder if he'd go, Lord, should I have sat on that pillar for all those years? I wonder Lord, the said, like, well, you could do that if you want. It sounds painful. But what I actually wanted you to do is go into all the world and preach the gospel and love your neighbor and be kind to the sinner and forgive the people that have wronged you. Like you kind of did not what I really wanted you to do. I wonder if he was like, oh man, what a waste of those last 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> Why do we do what we do? Because Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Asceticism should have been nailed down when they realized that Jesus, Romans 5.8, he commends his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Simon the Stylite didn't need to be freezing and in pain. Jesus was in pain for him so that he didn't have to feel the pain. These people, the ascetics, they lost the whole point. The point is Jesus suffered for you so that you wouldn't have, you and have to. And then that's what should motivate you and me to do what we do because of the Lord. In fact, it's 2 Corinthians 5, 14, 15 says, for the love of Christ constrains us or you know, compels us to do what we do because we thus judge that if one died for all, <clears throat> then we, then we're all dead and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live to themselves but unto him which died for them and rose again. The Christian, we wanna live for him and we wanna do what he wants us to do. And yet people do stuff thinking God wants them to do stuff, but it's just made up weirdness. So we start our lesson here in this chapter, an interesting inquisition. Lord, should we weep fast and mourn as we've done all these piously 70 years? The poor presumption was that somehow God was pleased by their weeping, fasting and mourning. And now we come to the next section, verses eight through 14, a rough reminder. Listen to what the Lord says to these guys. It gets kind of brutal. In verse eight, and the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, thus speaketh the Lord of hosts saying, execute true judgment and show mercy and compassions every man to his brother. And oppress not the widow nor the fatherless nor the stranger nor the poor and let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. But they refused to hearken and pulled away the shoulder and stopped the ears that they should not hear. Yea, they made their hearts as an adamant stone lest they should hear the law and the words of the Lord of hosts that he sent in his spirit by the former prophets. Therefore came a great wrath from the Lord of hosts. Therefore it has come to pass that as he cried and they would not hear, so they cried and I would not hear, saith the Lord of hosts. But I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations whom they knew not. Thus the land was desolate after them that no man passed through nor returned for they laid the pleasant land desolate. The Lord says, yeah, you're weeping, fasting, morning thing, whatever, I want you to be kind to each other I want you to show mercy and give to the poor. You were all worried about your weeping fasting morning the fifth and seventh month. But what about when you were plugging your ears when the prophets were saying, repent and do the right thing, get rid of your paganism. And the people, I love this, it says, but they, pull, they refused to listen and pulled away their shoulders. It's like, they're, huh, I'm not listening to you. And then they plugged their ears. La, 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 la. We're not listening to the Lord. That's what, that's what verse 11 is. And so the Lord says, because of that, I scattered you among the nations and crushed Jerusalem. Brutal. This is a rough reminder of why. You see, they were supposed to be weeping and fasting and mourning because Jerusalem was crushed, but they should have been mourning, not because Jerusalem was crushed, it's they should have been mourning why Jerusalem was crushed. It was because of their sin. They were just weeping and mourning because they lost their city. And God's correcting them and setting them straight. <laughs> so should we stop weeping and fasting and mourning? The Lord says, stop ripping off the poor. Show kindness to those in trouble. <laughs> You know, um, it's interesting that when people turn away their ears from the word of God, it always is troubles. In fact, Proverbs twenty-eight nine says, "He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be an abomination." If you're one who's saying, "Yeah, you know, the Bible, whatever," and you're turning away your ears from the word, don't be shocked when your prayers fail to fly. You can pray till you're blue in the face, but wouldn't you agree if your prayer is an abomination before the Lord, is the Lord gonna hear that prayer? The answer is no. So the Lord even says that, you know, uh, interesting. He says, therefore, it'll come to pass, verse 13, that as he cried, the Jew in Jerusalem, um, um, pardon me, the Lord, when he cried to the Jews in Jerusalem, they would not hear so that when they cried, the Jews in Jerusalem crying, then I will not hear, saith the Lord of hosts. That's what happens when we rebel against the word of God. So you have an interesting inquisition. You have a poor presumption. They were presuming that God was into their weeping, fasting, morning praying. And then a rough reminder of why everything happened to them the way it did. Now, I don't want to leave this um, with this brutal ending because it's kind of heavy. The Lord's saying, yeah, you know, uh, you guys are a bunch of losers. You kind of think brutal. But this reminds me of being a parent. You know when your kids do bad stuff and you're, you get on them, get after them, um, you know, you're, you, you moms know how it is. You can be pretty perturbed with your kids. I always crack up at the things moms say to their kids, you know, I'm gonna twist your head off like the Linda pickle jar. You know, I'm gonna tell your father when he gets home or whatever you said to your kids. Um, but you're really mad at them. But you know, when we hear that stuff, most of you, we know you still, you still as a mother have a real love for those little rascals, those little stinkers, man. And, and the rest of them are like, yeah, they're a bunch of little sinners. But you're like, yeah, I was mad at them. But, but I still love them. That's, that's what I want to finish with on this because the Father in heaven's not like us. We're sinful parents. But one thing I love about God, the Father, even though he sees their error in chapter seven, in chapter eight, let's just do a sneak preview, just two verses, then we'll wrap it up. In chapter eight, verse seven and eight, we see what God does. Same people, same people. He just kind of thumped a little bit in chapter seven. Look at verse seven of chapter eight. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the East country and from the West country. And I will bring them and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and they shall be my people and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. Even though these people were misguided and made some major sins by paganism and idol worshiping and all the reasons Jerusalem was crushed, it's just a heavy story. But I love how it ends with the Lord saying, but you know what, I still love those little rascals. Those, those Jews, I still have a plan and a purpose for the Jews, and I still am gonna bring them back to Jerusalem and make them my people, and I will be their God. That's the God you and I serve. You might be one who's failed. You might be doing silly things, goofy things, stupid things. But guess what, the Lord still loves you, and I love that. Um, the Lord wasn't, you know, you, you say, wasn't the Lord just uh, upset with them in chapter seven? Yep, but he also loves them and redeems them and, and, um, and, and one of the things he's, he's telling them what to do, love each other. Um, as I'm forgiving you, that's how I want you to forgive others. Like the, he's demonstrating to them what they need to start doing. When he said, execute true judgment, uh, there in verse nine, show mercy and compassion. That's exactly what the Lord's about to do to them in chapter eight. Um, by the way, it reminds me of Ephesians 4.32, be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Um, good lesson. Maybe there's a challenge for each one of you to ask the Lord, why do I do what I do? And am I doing stuff just because people ask me to do it? Or human tradition? Do I, do I go to college because everybody goes to college? Um, and I'm spending $60,000 on a degree in French poetry and gonna try to make a living out of that. And like, why do, I, why do I do what I do? My mom and dad made me go to college. Is that a good reason? It might be. The um, Bible says, honor your father. But Some of you went to college because you just wanted to honor your parents. That's, that's, that's a legit thing, honestly. But for you parents, I'd tell you, don't make your kids do that. It's, it's, it's not worth the 60 grand a year. <clears throat> but anyway, um, that's a whole nother topic. Um, I wonder if, if you'd ask the Lord, Lord, why do we do? By the way, the, the pastors, the elders, the, the leadership here at AFI, we constantly are asking, Lord, what, what, what does AFI do that we don't really need to be doing? And what are things that your Bible tells us to do that we might be missing or forgetting? That's something we're constantly praying about and wrestling. Lord, we thank you for loving us so much that you saved us. We thank you for your cross, dying for us. Lord, I pray your blessing upon these, your people as we go our way on this Sunday morning. Thanks for showing us your word. Help us to think more like you, be more like you, Lord. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.